morning, everyone. It's good to see you and be with you. My name's Nelson. Um, feeling excited this morning, and that's not just because uh, I got to sing karaoke with Kristen Sawatsky last evening at Colin and Melissa's uh, Mexico fundraiser party, although that was exciting. We did Avril, Avril Lavigne. Um, I'm excited not just because we got to hear Karen's story this morning. Thank you, Karen, for sharing, and uh, Kathy for helping facilitate that. Um, I'm excited not just because we got one of the screens working this morning. That's going to help a lot of things in this gathering. Um, I'm excited not just because we got to sing, I'm a good, good father. I got to hold my daughter, and she's raising her hand. And yeah, so that was a moment. Excited because of that. But I am excited because we get to start a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's called Sermon on the Mount. Is that right? Did we, did we call it some, anything different? If we did, it, it didn't reach the sermon slides. So Sermon on the Mount is the title of this new series, and it's on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is essentially considered the best sermon Jesus himself ever preached. And it's regarded by many as the best summary of Jesus' ethical teaching. And just a heads up, we're going to be here in Matthew's gospel for a good while, like till the fall, um, chapters five through seven. And so that's another way of saying that it is so good, it's so brilliant, and so worthy of careful, focused consideration and attention that we're going to spend the better part of five months, 25 sermons, give or take, to trying to explore and unpack all that Jesus said in a single sermon. So why so much time? Does our wisdom our grasp, our understanding pale that much in comparison to Jesus? Well, yes. But it's not just about the amount of wisdom. It's about the kind of wisdom that Jesus embodied and taught. It's not only a quantitative issue. It's also a qualitative one. Here's how Richard Rohr put it. And this is in your handout for this morning because it's worth taking home and revisiting as we progress through the series. Jesus taught, he writes an alternative wisdom, the reign of God, which overturns the conventional and common trust in power, possessions, and personal prestige. To understand the Sermon on the Mount, we must approach it with an open heart and a beginner's mind, ready to have these normal cultural beliefs and preferences changed. If that's true, then the impact of this series doesn't only rest on the ability of the preaching team to communicate, to illustrate what Jesus preached. If Roar is right, then the series will go well to the degree that all of us as listeners are willing to approach each text with open mind, with open heart, and with a constant readiness to change. So I have to ask as we get going, how ready are we to hear this? How ready are we to hear this? I want to pray... Someone's responding. Tasha, what were you saying? So ready. so ready? Sweet. There's one possibility. I'm going to pray in a moment, but I first want to leave a little bit of space for us to each sit with that question, to respond honestly to it, not out of what you want to be the case or what you think I might want to hear, but what's currently true in your own heart. And then from that place, recognizing that God isn't judging you for less readiness, nor am I doing that. Nor is God thinking of you as particularly special if you feel super ready. In that place, from that place, offer your desire to God. 
just invite you to do that. If we've apprenticed ourselves to the way of Jesus, then that means he's Lord. It means we're not. That means he gets to define reality. He gets to determine how things are. He gets to set the course and alter my direction. So are we ready for Jesus to do that kind of work in us through this series? And if we're not, then what might be in the way of my readiness? So I invite you, if that's the case, there's something in the way, name it with compassion for yourself, with compassion for others around you who might be in that space and who might be experiencing something different. So just take a moment and just talk to Jesus right now, and then I'll pray, and we'll head into the series. God, I begin by confessing all the place my mind goes when I hear that question in my own self. Readiness is a, it's a loaded term. What do we really mean? Does anyone really know? Do I really know if I'm ready or not? I also admit that change is hard. Change doesn't always come easily. And so I offer uh, myself from that place to you, to your spirit who is alive and active and present in your word. And on behalf of my sisters and brothers in this room, we just offer where we are as we are and invite your spirit to meet us where we are and to bring us to a place of newness. In the name of Christ, amen. So I invite you to uh, take your Bible or one of the chair Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 5. The page number is on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. Towards the back in general. Um, We're actually going to start by backing up and reading the last few verses of chapter 4. So chapter 4 from verse 23. There it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Large crowds from Galilee. Uh, The Decapolis means ten cities. So this is a Greek area settled by Alexander the Great. So that means not Jewish, not religious, not clean, not pure, not holy, not following the scripture commands. And then the rest of the areas, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, the region across the Jordan, all Jewish. So someone said it, the actual Greek here is mishmash. (laughs) This is all sorts of people, a seething mass of humanity. This would have included a good number who were taught that in order to follow God, you shouldn't have contact with those kinds of people, whatever that happens to mean. Large crowds, in other words, who shouldn't be together. It's a big theme the past couple of months that we've been looking at as we've walked through Ephesians. 
Next couple of verses, chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Teach them. So you've got this small circle of close followers surrounded by this huge, incredibly diverse spectrum of humankind. Hold on to that just for a moment. Now also notice the phrase, he went up on a mountainside. This isn't just a geographical statement, it's a theological one. It's a phrase that looks backward and forward within the scriptural narrative. So first backward, it looks backward to the Old Testament story of the Exodus, when God's revelation came to Moses on another mountain called Sinai. Matthew wants this to sound familiar to at least some of his readers, that Jesus is, in a sense, a new Moses on a second Sinai. The the original revelation, the Ten Commandments, came after the people of Israel were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And this new revelation comes after the Savior has arrived. Grace comes first, then law. It also looks forward to the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy about a great future mountain. Book of Isaiah, chapter 2. Verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside, he is reminding us that mountains tend to be the place where God shows up. He's sending a signal that this this is a big deal. Pay attention. We've been here before. We'll be here again. And oh, wow, it's happening right now. What's going on? One thing that's happening is a clear invitation to notice who God shows up for in all these cases. So again, in the backward look, In Exodus, God moves toward people who are enslaved and are in exile. For people suffering under a cruel taskmaster, God sees them, comes alongside them in mercy. For people without a home, God becomes home. For people incapacitated, for for people unable to save themselves, unworthy of saving, God brings salvation. In the forward look, in Isaiah's prophecy, who does God show up for? Who gets drawn in to God's holy mountain? All nations. It's hard to imagine that happening in real time right now. All nations? Really? I mean, look around. All nations. The ones who are always picking fights? The ones who systematically oppress the poor and the outsider? The ones who constantly favor and coddle the rich and the insiders? The ones who have totally bought into the ways of power Possession and personal prestige? The ones who have no time for God? Isaiah couldn't seriously mean all nations, could he? The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Isaiah. They'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us his way so we may walk in his paths. What? How? Why? Incredible. So then we come to Matthew and someone else is climbing the mountain. And this, as we say in the vernacular, is a moment. This is a moment. It's a large crowd of diverse people who shouldn't be together, sinners, tax collectors, 
prostitutes, the ultra-religious, the very Gentile people who aren't considered religious, and Jesus' inner circle of disciples all are following Jesus up the mountain to hear what the buzz is all about. And it's in the middle of this crowd of misfits, exiles, religious insiders that Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Blessed is an interesting word in our current moment. I say interesting because it's being used a lot, and I don't know exactly why or how it got started. There's the self-gratuitous humble brag. Looked on Twitter a little bit. Um, Someone tweeted, walked into Target for a new aux cord, new auxiliary cord, walked out with a waffle maker, hashtag blessed. Next one, dude in my suite knows a Dunkin' Donuts employee, hashtag blessed. (laughs) Right? If you know a Dunkin' Donuts employee, super worthy of that hashtag. Next one, OMG, Justin Bieber followed me. I can't wait to tell my fan club tomorrow, hashtag Bieber forever, hashtag blessed. Get the order correct. Um, I don't know who's on in that person's fan club that wouldn't be following them on Twitter, but there's another circle, I guess. Um, There's the self-gratuitous humble brag. There's also ironic humor. Uh, If you watch the show Parks and Rec, you might remember this great little scene. Um, There's a hearing, court hearing going on, and and Tom Haverford is asked, please read the transcript of your Twitter page leading up to and immediately following your crash. Four green lights in a row. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) There's the humble brag. There's actual humor. There's pointed cultural critique. Any of you heard Kendrick Lamar's little preach on the end of uh, U2's song, Get Out of Your Own Way, where he says, blessed are the arrogant, for theirs is the kingdom of their own company. Blessed are the superstars, for the magnificence in their light, we understand better our own insignificance. Blessed are the filthy rich, for you can only truly own what you give away, like your pain. And we may appreciate these usages of the word blessed for what they are, but when it's used in scripture, it's multifaceted. It's tough to translate. The Greek word is makarios, makarios, and it can be understood in many senses. We could translate it favored or fortunate, flourishing, approved, congratulations. God blesses, blessings on you. God is with you, God is on your side. You lucky bums, said one theologian. (laughs) Another said, religious language has come to such a pass that perhaps luck, of all words, suggests the reality of this better than blessing. Everybody knows that luck has magic in it, and that when you have it, you really have something. Blessing, holy luck, something akin to magic. That's the first word. That's how Jesus begins his most famous, his most highly regarded gospel summarizing sermon. He doesn't open with a list of demands. He starts with blessing, makarios. Already, we learn something crucially important about who Jesus is. He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders. Grace before law, indicative before imperative. This order matters. Blessing is the first word. And who are the first group of people Jesus blesses? The poor in spirit. 
this is not a positive term. It's a negative one. Poor in spirit, losers. People who have hit rock bottom. Spiritual zeros. Bankrupt, pathetic, lame, morally empty. So hear me on this. Poor in spirit is not a condition we're supposed to aspire to. It's not a state we're to try and attain. Also, some commentators want to translate this verse as, blessed are those who know how much they need God. In other words, people who have attained a certain degree of humility, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, that God is on the side of the losers, the pathetic, the depraved, the lame, the spiritually deficient, is so shocking and upside down, so opposite of status quo, so brilliant, and also strangely comforting, especially for those on the outside who always feel like they're disqualified from the makarios of God. So the Beatitudes are not timeless truths. They're not good advice. They're not an ethical code of conduct. They're not seven steps to get God's blessing. They're not the happy attitudes. They're not kingdom entrance requirements. They're not classic religious poetry, preferably read in the King James Version with a British accent. Beatitudes are an announcement. An announcement. They're a different way of framing something. They're they're not giving instruction. Someone might say, well, yeah, Matthew says he began to teach them. I'm like, I know. He's teaching by announcing. Jesus is not saying, here's how to get God's blessing. He's not issuing a command. Nor is he offering advice. You know, I'm pretty smart, guys. Here's how I think you ought to approach this. He's not casting blame. He's not dispensing good information on how the world works. He's doing none of that. Instead, Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with an announcement. He's announcing that God is on the side of everyone who there's no reason God should be on their side. This is the definition of counterintuitive logic. It's what Rohr called alternative wisdom. Any water skiers out there? Who are the slalom superstars? Yeah, keep that hand up. Pretty sure Dana qualifies that. So, so just one. Who's water skied ever? Got up, two skis, one ski, doesn't matter. I once heard someone compare this logic to uh, how to get up on water skis. So if you have water skied quite a bit before, you know what it's like to be in the boat, talking to the newbie, nervously floating in the deep water, holding onto the rope, saying, just let the boat, what? Pull you up. Completely counterintuitive. The goal is to get up, so stay down. The goal is to move through the water, so lay back. If you're the first timer, you know the feeling of saying, hit it, and then leaving too, leaning too far forward, like many, many times in a row. I know the feeling, I should say. Let's be right to the point. But you keep trying, and they keep saying, let the boat pull you up. And then after a while, there's a moment where it clicks. You're coiled, and you're firm, yet you're relaxed, and you actually lay back, and you, 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 I will let the boat pull me up. Doesn't work like it's supposed to work. But when it clicks into gear, you can't imagine it any other way. So we hear Jesus make this initial announcement of blessing. And if you're like me, your first thought is, what is the good thing in this statement that makes me deserving of God's blessing? But this announcement is so backwards and so counterintuitive that it essentially amounts to this. Blessed are those for whom there's no reason they should be blessed. Blessed is everyone who has a hard time believing in God. 
Blessed is everyone who couldn't tell the truth if they tried. What if that's the gospel? What if that's what Jesus is saying? If it is, then, well, that's slightly off-putting for religious people. For people who think of themselves as being at the top of their game spiritually, it is dead easy to become convinced that God's blessing is for these particular people because of this particular thing that they've done or said or believed. And to them, Jesus says, no. Blessed are the pathetic losers without a wisp of religion because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And right away, our radars go, why? Why? There has to be something in the equation that makes them deserving. What is it? Let's jump over to Luke's gospel for just a moment. We'll start in Luke 14. When this sort of why question occurs to us, why them? What's in their condition that makes them deserving? Jesus usually doesn't give much response to the why other than God is like this. The gospels are full of stories to which there isn't much answer to the why other than that's what God is like. Luke 14 from 16 to 21, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First said, I've just bought a field, I must go see it, please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Notice the excuses. So I just bought a field. I need to, well, yeah, you buy some property. You want to go check it out and make sure there's no surprises, whatever's going on. I just bought five yoke of oxen. That I've got to try them out. I've got to make sure that they're working because tomorrow there are chores. I just got married, so enough said. And then we get to who gets invited instead, verse 21, the poor, crippled, the blind, and the lame, the poor in spirit. Back to verse 16, why does the man throw the banquet? No reason, just does. It's what he's like. Flip over a page to uh, Luke 17, 11 to 14, now. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Why? Why did Jesus heal the lepers? Because that's who he is. Well, presumably because they're sick. Did they deserve to be healed? We don't know. Why doesn't Luke tell us? Maybe because it's the wrong question. Jesus healed the lepers because he's a healer. No other reason given. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Chief tax collector plus wealthy equals this was a wealth built on the very backs of the people in that crowd. Zacchaeus was a man hated, despised, and Jesus says, you, coming over, 
Why? 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 You've heard the story of Philippe Petit, the French man who in 1974 strung a tightrope at one end or one World Trade Center tower to the other, some 1,500 feet up, and he walked across it. It's a story told in the film Man on Wire and more recently The Walk. He spent more than an hour up there. I just watched some of the original news footage from that moment. Associates managed to hide out in the World Trade Center towers overnight and early this morning rigged a 140-foot steel cable between the two buildings using some sort of crossbow device. Petit enthralled hundreds of people below, prancing about for more than an hour. But police in the audience decided Petit was better off in a police station, handcuffed securely to a chair. Why did you do this? Ah, that's the thousand uh, why in this morning. There is no why. It's just uh, because... Uh, um, when, when I see a beautiful place to put my wire, I cannot resist. <laughs> why did you do this? There is no why. I can't not do it. It's who I am. I see a beautiful place to string my wire, and I just can't help it. I can't resist. Why to a large crowd, to a mishmash of humanity with all these differing worldviews and beliefs, did Jesus come announcing that the kingdom of God is yours? those who haven't kept the covenant, those who haven't even heard of it, those without a hint of religion, those who don't believe the right things, those who have royally messed it up at work. Blessed are you because God is on your side. You who are spiritually inadequate, who don't even come close to deserving the blessing of God, the blessing of God is here and it's for you. And in our self-righteous, expertly religious tight-fisted, opposite-of-beginner minds. We want to say, no, 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 hang on. That can't be the way it is. We all know God blesses those who work hard, that God blesses those who make the absolutely airtight, theologically correct statement of faith. God blesses those who do the right thing at the right time, who go to the right schools, who keep their head down and stay out of trouble. That's who God, the favor of God is for. What sort of good news does that all add up to? That God helps those who help themselves, which is about as anti-Christ and anti-gospel as you can get. It says God's love is for those who are able to earn it. Someone said it this way. If the moment we look down on someone who is not as disciplined, hardworking, upright, smart, responsible, moral, God-fearing, Bible-believing, or Jesus-trusting as we are, because they've made idiotic, immoral, stupid choices again and again and again at that moment, we are in fact rich in spirit, and Jesus isn't announcing anything to us. Now, some of us may be thinking, what about those scripture texts? I know I've heard them. Don't know if I can name where they are, but there are texts that seem to say Blessing is something to be earned, that God's blessing comes to those who don't associate with particular kinds of people, that God's blessing is reserved for the well 
behaved. Here's an example. Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. Or Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. I think the whole testimony of Scripture would say at least three things in response. First, God's favor can, of course, be experienced as we live life God's way. But don't for a moment think that if you do, you're earning it. It's not, I live life God's way, so God owes me. And don't for a moment think that if you have God's blessing, you will never again have to suffer. This is where the health and wealth gospel preachers have it dead wrong and have completely missed the cruciform nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I think secondly it says God's favor, as Jesus pronounces it, is available without cost to those who are failing miserably at life in all the ways we've talked about. But blessing comes as both favor and assistance. The announcement of Jesus is doing more than just stating facts. He's offering help. Nowhere in this beatitude is a suggestion that Jesus wants those who are poor in spirit to remain poor in spirit. I think there is also a response that would say this. God's favor properly received will cause you not to want to hoard it all to yourself. If you have received it appropriately, you will want it for those who haven't yet received it and don't deserve it. That's a huge part of what it means to be a church that takes Jesus' gospel pronouncement seriously. It means embracing the truth that before this is a theology or a doctrine or a movement or a system or an institution or a worldview or a perspective, it's an announcement. It's an announcement. It's an announcement that God sent his one and only son into the world because God so loved the world It's an announcement that God did not send his son into the world to judge or condemn, but to save. So to take the gospel announcement of Jesus seriously is to understand that the entry point into this most famous sermon is not high, but low. Someone else said, if the gospel isn't good news to the so-called outliers, then it's not good news at all. And in fact, if our theology doesn't start with the outliers, then maybe we're doing it wrong. Is this shocking and jarring? A little bit. Is it ridiculously counterintuitive? Definitely. Is it also strangely healing and comforting? I I hope it is. Some invitations. In preaching school, one of my mentors taught us to invite our hearers into some sort of action. So that's the place that we are right now, right? Um, If it's true that following Jesus means practicing his way, then it makes sense that there ought to be some practical component to what we hear in a sermon. So this is Jesus' sermon also, if I haven't mentioned that, so we better key in on this aspect. So one way to do this would be to ask the question, what is the do of the text? What is the do of the text? And I I was preparing this week, and it started to dawn on me that if this is an announcement... What do we do with announcements? If it were a command, if it were steps to get God's blessing, if it were entrance requirements, then the do would present itself quite simply and easily. But if it's an announcement and the do 
is not become or aspire to be poor in spirit, then what is it? I wonder if the invitations this morning could be at least these three things. First, to just be in awe of it. Be in awe of this announcement. This brings us full circle to the question of how ready are we to hear this? A response of awe begins with hearing the announcement for what it is. An announcement of the best news possible. All of you think I'm out or this certain part of my life or my past disqualifies me. God is now pouring out his blessing on you. You don't earn it. You simply stand in awe of it. Because it's not advice or teaching or blame or seven steps or any of that. It's an announcement of God's unmerited favor. What's the appropriate response to the one who says, blessed are those who have no reason in the world why they should be blessed? Awe, reverence, worship, bowing low before the Christ with open hands. This new and better Moses who gives everyone an opportunity to follow him up the mountain. Be in awe of it. Second invitation, be changed by it. Be changed by it. Which, if you count yourself as being among the poor in spirit this morning, involves repentance, involves receptivity. There's a turning. It's announcement and assistance. The blessing God offers is sheer gift. It's offered to those of us who have had an abortion. It's offered to those of us who have been unfaithful. It's offered to those of us who have royally screwed it up at work. It's offered to those who have certain websites that they can't stay away from. But as with any gift, it can be refused. Will we receive it in order to be changed by it? And receiving also implies a trusting, doesn't it? Letting your identity be shaped not by your level of performance, your comparison to other people, or where you are on the ladder of success. Trusting God to shape your identity, not by an anti-gospel of love that has to be earned, but this gospel of radical, reckless, pursuing grace. Be changed by it. And finally, I think be agents of it. Be agents of it. Be good news in the way you relate to those who are poor in spirit in your current circle of influence because here's the thing while we're not to aspire to to the state of being poor in spirit reality is we all find ourselves in that state at one point or another what would it look like to think of to talk to to relate with the people in our worlds in such a way that we communicate the blessing of God is for you that God is on your side how would it change the way we talk to our roommate our sister our brother our spouse, our barista, our hairdresser, our concierge, our nanny, our mechanic. To be an agent of God's blessing toward the poor in spirit implies also that we don't just stay in our immediate circles. It means being intentional about being among the poor in spirit. There's a sense in which these invitations form a bit of a progression. We move from awe to being changed to agency. Kind of makes sense, right? So I don't know where you find yourself in this moment, but wherever you are, be assured that God's favor will meet you there. In another sense, I might suggest that they're a cycle. Once we start becoming agents of God's favor toward others, we're not done with awe. We're not done being changed. 
We keep going back again and again to that place of awe. Really? God's favor is on me, on them? We keep going back, hearing the announcement, receiving it again and again with open hands. Blessed are you, for God is on your side. Let's pray, and we'll move to the table. Jesus, I stand in awe of this word of good news, this word of blessing, this grace that precedes law, this announcement that is also assistance, this word of life in a culture of death, this word of possibility. in a place where we often tend to see dead ends. Would your Holy Spirit continue to visit us wherever we are as we approach this text, as we come into this sermon, cause us to open our hands to receive all that you have to receive the blessing that you so freely and willingly want to bestow on us. May we receive it in such a way that it changes us and that it turns us into agents of your blessing for others. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.